special episode. Throughout my research and developing the episodes on the Frankish papacy, I have been incredibly fortunate to have had the assistance of a proper Carolingian scholar who has been kind enough to help provide sources, contacts, clarity, and in-depth discussions about the details and motivations of the Carolingians of the 8th and 9th century, and to help me understand just what these Franks were up to when it came to the popes. And today, we get to share one of those conversations with you. Joining us to talk about church and state, power and myth-making, and the roots of relationship between Carolingians and popes, it is my absolute pleasure and privilege to introduce to the show Dr. Rutger Kramer of Rudboud University. Dr. Rutger Kramer, welcome to Pontifax. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on mic to talk about all things Carolingian. Thank you for having me. You sound just like on your podcast, so I'm uh, more than a bit starstruck. I would love to start with you. So beyond being the absolute academic hero of this podcast, can you tell our audience who you are and and what you do and, and, and what your scholarship is? So my name is Rutger Kramer. I'm I'm a lecturer uh, currently uh, based in Nijmegen and Utrecht in the Netherlands. Uh, before that, I spent many years in Vienna, and before that in Berlin. This is always important to know about scholars where they did their stuff. <laughs> While there, so basically all those all that time I have been working on Carolingian history, early medieval history in general, but mostly the Carolingian stuff. And my research focuses on the intersection between what we nowadays would call church and state. So how does political thinking flow into religious thinking and the other way around? And within that question, I am super interested in why people want to be part of that process. So how do communities form? And in the Carolingian era also, why do people accept authority? Why do they look at Charlemagne or at any given Pope and think that's the guy? I think that's fascinating. And the Carolingians are the perfect test case for that sort of question because they were so full of themselves. Yes, they were. (laughs) And that's why you are the perfect person for me to talk to throughout the entire period that I was looking at the Frankish papacy and why you were the perfect person to bounce ideas off of and to provide sources for and, and whatnot, because this is exactly what I want to talk to you about, which is church and state and Franks and popes. So let's do that. And first off, I guess the most important question to get us off the ground is, Can we even speak of, like, church and state in this era? What might we be losing in attempting to structure the ninth century with these concepts that are, at best, underdeveloped at this time? Well, that is a very good question, and I think I should preface this by just saying it's very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it is. It's history. I'm very much in the camp that says, yes, you can definitely talk of a church and state in this era. You ask what might we be losing in attempting to structure history with these concepts. Uh, To some extent, I think there's a lot to be gained by using those terms as well, because nowadays the consensus seems to be to just say church and state was the same thing, politics and religion was the same thing. And then we gloss over it and move on to the next bit. But by actually sort of artificially trying to separate the two, you can see in the sources that someone like like Alcuin, someone like Hinkmar, I'm not naming any popes at all because the Carolingians did not care about them. But you can look at the way they frame their political commentary and you can see that they are aware that it's a different role to play than when they are acting as a bishop. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, and I think if you were to say, well, it's just the same thing, 
you lose the fact that they, these people, 8th, 9th, 10th, whatever, throughout the Middle Ages, were aware that it wasn't the same thing. So I think, in a way, what you lose is actually sort of a sense of reality, because in practice, there is not a pope or bishop who wasn't aware of, let's say, eschatological consequences to what they were, to everything they did. I'm going to wash my face today. Could this have consequences? We don't know. Like, this is something that they must have been thinking about all the time. With that idea that this is something that they think about all the time, how can we conceptualize power in this era? So let's start with the Carolingians and then we'll go to the church. So how do we conceptualize power for the Carolingians? I think there's two answers here that I should both give, and I'll try to be a bit briefer than I just was. The first question is actually, how can we conceptualize power in this era for the Carolingians? Because a lot of what we are doing when we're talking about church and state or power authority is us looking with this famous benefit of hindsight at stuff that worked, people who listened and people who didn't. So in that sense, power is just decisions that people listen to, the fact that you were being obeyed in a way. And of course, here you can get like very sarcastic, very cynical about the sources, because especially the Carolingians were the absolute masters of just letting things run their course then whenever something positive came out of that, they would say, ha, we totally meant for that to happen. And that bleeds into the other answer to your question, basically, how can we conceptualize power in this area for the Carolingians? Basically, I think it's better to frame that as a matter of convincing people that obeying you is the right way forward, that that will make you the most money, that that will get you the most peace and quiet on your own lands and the most success against your enemies on the other on the other side of the border. So there is a, uh, a point where we have to acknowledge that Charles Martel, Pippin, Charlemagne, Louis de Pius were just very good at getting the right people in the right place so that everyone who was dependent on the structure that was represented by kings or emperors knew that, oh, if we play the game correctly, if we sort of try to fit ourselves within this structure, then things will continue to be okay. Yeah, definitely. Especially in those early Carolingian monarchs. Yeah, there, there was a lot of convincing going on. <laughs> I think it's very, very important to realize that all, like, within the entire, for lack of a better word, brouhaha about uh, the usurpation of, by Pippin of the Merovingian throne in the 750s, all the sources agree that all the Franks agreed. <laughs> that sounds a little bit like myth-making and propaganda. It kind of does, but it's similar to to modern politicians saying the people want this or I am representing America, I am representing the people of the Netherlands and then people have the choice to agree or disagree with that statement. So this was not propaganda in the modern sense that it was aimed at the unwashed masses who produced the food. This was propaganda that invited people with power, people with soldiers, people with like actual clout to say, oh, I was one of those Franks. And by agreeing with such a statement, you automatically become part of the system. Identity politics. That's a way uh, of, <laughs> of framing it, yeah. You... So by comparison then, how do we conceptualize power in this era for the church? So I'm going to do a bit of a 180 here and say, well, there wasn't such a thing as the church at the time, <laughs> even though I just said there was. It's true. It's true. There are many churches at this point. But let's, let's focus, let's say, for the Roman church. Okay, for the Roman church. Okay, so now, now we're back to, so I made it 360. Thank you for that. I think with the, with the papacy for the Roman church, we should 
always keep in mind this sort of idea that any given pope, any given chancellor um, was aware of these different personae at play at various points. So the pope as a politician is someone different from the pope as a bishop. I'm over overstating my point a bit here, but there is very roughly speaking, um, I hope I don't, sorry, can I swear? Yes, oh, of course. We'll just shame value. <laughs> okay, sorry. In the hopes of not uh, antagonizing my colleagues, I think uh, if you go back to the earliest church, there's a model that emerges for church leadership, which you can see in the words episcopus and uh, sacerdos. So without getting too technical, um, so the episcopus is the overseer. And in the earliest church, they were the ones who sort of ran the administrative business of the Christian community in a given town, which at that point, of course, wasn't fully Christianized yet. And the Sacerdos was the one who sort of bore responsibility for the religious aspects of being a Christian, being the leader of a Christian community. So in a way, the Episcopus in the early church had the power and the Sacerdos had the authority. But this very quickly, very quickly, it tended to be one person having both these hats on, basically. But you can kind of see in the earliest church already that they were aware that at some point you just need to be pragmatic. You need to make on-the-ground decisions about things. And then someone needs to perform mass. Someone needs to make sure that we truly understand what's in those three chapters and so forth and so on. And this becomes manifested later on in the in the papacy of Pope Gelasius with the duo sunt. They actually make this a sort of formalized theology that they then use to their own advantage because we have, again, that sacred authority of the priest, which is the auctoritas, and then we have the potestas, which is the power of the secular authority, so authority versus power, and they seem to be the only ones that get to walk all over both sides of that because of their ideas of apostolic succession and Petrine primacy. Yeah, it's, uh, th that letter by Galatius is super important, uh, but also only became so in retrospect. I don't think like what what we now think of that letter in its original context is that it was much more a way of explaining to the emperor of Byzantium, and I'd have to look up which one that is, to say, hey, this also, you can also reverse what he's saying there and say, look, you, the wielder of the secular sword, have a responsibility to help me. That's also part of the rhetoric of that letter. So in its initial context, it was just the Pope saying, you have to help me combat heretics. That's both our problem, basically. And then later, as especially in the Carolingian era and beyond, this letter takes on the meaning that we now still give it, basically. Definitely. There's two swords, as one being religious, one being secular power, really got instrumentalized by the Franks and their popes, in a way. <laughs> So we have these two different factions. We have the, for lack of a better term, the loosely the church and the state of the Carolingians and the popes. And they're clearly aiming for different ideas of power. So how does this make them excellent allies or put them at odds with one another? So again, if we think of power, like I've been using this as a shorthand for both power and authority in the sense that one is the ability to enforce your will upon others by whatever means necessary, and authority is more about accepting that there are people above you, in a way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, if, if we say that power is basically the ability to make people do what you want, to enforce your will upon them, and authority is more... Like soft power, I think, is what we call it now. Like people accepting that what you are saying is beneficial or true or whatever. Then the combination of the two is actually where, let's say, the Carolingians and the papacy saw the potential in each other's power. 
And I'm thinking here one uh, a work that has been very influential in the way I would conceptualize this is uh, Michael Mann, not the director. Michael Mann's The Sources of Social Power, which is basically a history of power from the first instances to now. It's very ambitious. And he basically distinguishes four types of power, namely military, political, economic, and ideological power. So military speaks for itself. It's yeah, the power to send people to their deaths, basically, but it's also very limited. If you only have military power, he says, you can not really have a state that is as large as the Roman Empire or the Carolingian Empire. That's just not possible because then the you and what army argument becomes very important very quickly. So then there's political power, which also, I guess, speaks for itself. That's basically this structure that I was just talking about. So the idea that someone has the ability to put the right people in the right place and that everyone trusts everyone else to do their part of the job, basically. The economic power is the ability to harness resources. A very important aspect here is tax collecting. Being able, like people accepting that they should pay you in order for the military and political power to work, that's a big thing. And we never quite lose this. But here we can see sort of slippage between what the Carolingians could get away with and what the church, what the papacy could help them with. Because the church had basically the tithes built into, like they had the Roman tax collecting system built into their institutions in a way, in the form of these tithes. Whereas the Carolingians were operating on what is called a plunder economy. So they would go across the border and just take money from people that technically weren't their subjects and that would be it. Again, oversimplifying here, sorry colleagues, but <laughs> in order to be able to reboot something akin to a tax collecting system or in a more cynical way to dip your fingers in that sweet, sweet tithe money, you would need backing of church officials. And by this point, so by the 8th century, this had become quite an important bit of an underestimated, I should say, economic power of bishops. And the highest among them was, of course, the Pope. And this leads us to the ideological segment, both the most difficult and the easiest to explain. This is basically everything that doesn't fall under the other three. And here again, allying yourself with the Pope was an important part of creating a Carolingian ideology that people could follow because they had to fight against, they had to go up against Merovingian ideological power, which was basically that they were the best dynasty in place for everything to go as it should. They had a monopoly on ideological power. And by the mid-8th century, the Carolingians had sort of wrested away military and political power away from them, but they were struggling with the ideology bit. And this is where the papacy comes in. This is where their allyship with the papacy comes in. And they can say, well, we use the dynastic, the genealogical power of the Merovingians. We don't need that because we have St. Peter on our side. That's a very good segue into talking about the power and relationships between the Carolingians and the papacy, because this gives us the motivations of why the Carolingians would be motivated to connect themselves with Rome, because they're shifting ideas of Frankish rulership away from that Merovingian ideology to something much more concrete. And in order for their concrete system to have that ideological backing. They have to have this idea of moral legitimacy from somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. It's maybe not so much a shift away from something, from what the Merovingians did. There's a lot of myth-making involved in... So all the Carolingian sources claim that the Merovingians were these do-nothing kings who were just sitting around being drawn around the country in ox carts. 
I'm not sure about the Oxcarts, but they were definitely much more active and more influential than the sources would have you believe. So here you can see a tiny bit of uh, our dynasty is better than the other one. And if you read between the lines, it actually means that our dynasty is not necessarily better than the other one because the lady doth protest too much in a way. But they add to this a link with Rome. And the Merovingians mm -hmm. did not have that. So the Carolingians basically, I think, in a nutshell, came out swinging after the 750s, after Pippin had sort of cemented this alliance with Rome. They say, we are everything the other guys are and more. So what we're seeing there is a creation of history that suits their narrative, too, by pushing this idea of the Merovingians as a do-nothing king and being drawn around in ox carts. So on the topic of creating one's own history, we've talked a fair bit about this, this myth-making and this propaganda in the podcast when dealing with Pepin and Charlemagne and Hadrian and also with Pascal in the church in a very different way. So is this myth-making and propaganda the primary way in which one's own history is being created in the period, or are they using other methods to really drive that point home? The shortest answer I can give you is that, in a sense, all history writing is myth-making. So what you do as a historian is not so much figuring out the truth behind the myth, it's figuring out why this particular myth over all the others. And this can be very big, like the Carolingians taking over the Frankish realms, or it can be very small, like how your podcast interview go, that went all right, or wow, it was the best thing ever. <laughs> These are two variations of basically the fact that we are now speaking. But True. whoever is not presently in this room will have no clue of what actually happened, especially if they don't end up listening. Sorry, it's a very sort of small example. But it makes the point. Yeah, the only way of actually doing the history of this interview is by listening to the unedited recording. Wow, <laughs> that's very true. To think of the things that we edit. Yeah, even there, you are adding to the myth that I didn't cough once. <laughs> Sorry if this, if this gets no, too I meta, but that's what the Carolingians and the papacy in the Liber Pontificalis and their other works were also doing, is simply taking what they knew, people knew about history. This wasn't like pure invention. This wasn't an Orwellian nightmare, but they were very good at maybe sort of emphasizing one thing and de-emphasizing another. You can do this in writing, and then always the question is, who cares about this? Who could even read this? But uh, you mentioned Pascal, and you ask for another way of looking at this, like buildings were a super important part of conveying this message to the people who didn't have time to read through the entire Royal Frankish Annals, who didn't have time to look at theology. They would just look at churches and ask, who built this? You just hit on, on like the entire passion project of mine with what my, my proposed master's thesis, which was about patronage and architecture and art for the Medici as an expression of power much later on in the Renaissance, but yes, all of that. <laughs> That's very much, you know, using buildings, using physical expressions of power for those who could not read the sources. It's its own form of propaganda. So I just had a nerd moment about it. Oh, no, but this is a thing. Like, it's still a thing. Important people live in buildings that look important or make a point not to. Yeah, the Medici are, are a perfect example of harnessing the power of buildings, but also, like, you can jump through history and you can see it happen everywhere. Sticking to the medieval stuff, like, there's the church building under the, the Anglo-Normans, like, by William the Conqueror. First thing he did, he and his cronies did, was sort of get rid of all the Anglo-Saxon churches and build Anglo-Norman churches instead, because, hey, there's a new power in town. You can see it with, well, we mentioned Pascal. You can mention every single pope. 
as you know, there's a lot in the Liber Pontificalis on refurbishing churches, uh, restoring churches uh, that may or may not have been sacked by Saracens. Always. And the Carolingians did that too. Like they built a palace at a point in time where kings were usually sort of traveling around to make sure that their political and military power was felt everywhere. But here Charlemagne builds a palace and they actually call it the Lateran. It's in Aachen, but in the sources they say it's the Lateran Palace in Aachen. Ah, thank you. We've talked about tying ideas of Frankish rulership to the Pope and what their motivations to doing that was. So how can we tie ideas of apostolic succession and papal primacy and the duosant of the papacy in how they approach their relationship with the Carolingians? Like, why are the popes so dedicated to maintain that relationship? That's a very good question. <laughs> it's a difficult question to answer because, okay, I'm now going to give the answer like a very circumvent answer that you may not want. I know I'm being a bit, uh, I talk too much. It's ongoing, actual, detailed scholarship. We love it. It's a super uh, um, difficult question to answer for this period because here you get a tension in the sources between. On the one hand, the Carolingian sources that sort of treat the papacy as an institution, they do talk about different popes in various sources, but it's mostly for chronological reasons. Like there's just a point where it's a fact that Gregory IV was on the field of lies and not someone else. Like you cannot get around that. But they're hardly ever given a personality. They're hardly ever... Like, you could not do your podcast based on just Carolingian sources, because it would all be the same sort of representative of an institution. Oh, very much so. And that, for the Carolingians, was super important. It's a tie with Rome. Ooh, Rome, which for them was both the imperial city and the city of St. Peter. It's a tie with central Italy, because the Pope had real power, the papacy had real power. So for the Carolingians, it's fairly simple to look at the papacy as an institution, and maybe you like some of them, maybe you don't. The papacy, the papal court, Rome, had to deal with the personalities of these popes. Like in the Liber Pontificalis, as formulaic as it is, you can distill a personality from there, from the other letters, like, and you can see the people through the text in a way that you cannot do from the Carolingian point of view. And this is what makes the question so impossible to answer, because every new pope had to deal with a succession of emperors who did not... Re may maybe some of them did, some of them didn't, but who went for the institution first and the person second. But looking at it from the papal point of view, there was no dynasty, no real, no official dynasty. And there was just representatives of noble aristocratic factions each of whom brought their own baggage to the table. So every single pope would have had their own reasons for dealing with the Carolingians. But for the Carolingians, it was much more an alliance of political convenience. And it would be dismissive and sort of reductive to just say that for the papacy, it fell to protection. Obviously, this is a piece of it because we have the papacy really, really investing in their relationship with the Carolingians because of the Lombards and the Saracen incursions, and even in protection from the nobles within Rome. But like you say, there are so many personalities that you have to suss out because those relationships are so dynamic. We don't always have a Charlemagne and a Hadrian going on here. We have very, very different dynamics of that relationship, which is both to the benefit and the detriment of the papacy at any given time based on what they're dealing with on a much more personality-based scale from the Carolingians. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head when you said to the benefit and, to, and the detriment at the same time. Like this dynamic really becomes different the moment you focus on individuals versus people uh, like representing an institution. 
And uh, Charlemagne and Hadrian, I mean, the interesting counterfactual you could ask about them is, what if there were more? What if that's just a question of sources? We know so much about their relationship because we have many sources. And I'm not sure if you could say that Charlemagne was best buddies with all the popes. Oh, no, definitely not. But I don't think we should discount the fact that Charlemagne and Hadrian had sort of a special relationship. There was a point when individual popes looked at what was out there in terms of rulers they could work with. And this must have been some sort of personal connection as well. But we just don't know about this. If you look at like um, Leo, who was like horribly mutilated and then... Was that Leo? Yeah. Poor Leo. I, I just... So on the one hand, like he went... Like you can just say he went to Charlemagne because he was the most powerful person at that time. Right. But on the other hand, maybe he went to Charlemagne because he already knew, like, that's someone we can trust. He could have gone to a Lombard king, he could have gone to anyone else, but he chose to go to, like, Paderborn. Eyes and tongue in hand, probably, we don't know. <laughs> I just, I recently tweeted that it might have been a doppelganger, that they just said, it's a miracle, this is the guy, because they maybe they didn't know each other. Secret twin brothers. But seriously, though, like... <laughs> This was not a random choice of whatever Leo looked like at the time, whoever was helping him, they chose to go to Charlemagne and they had personal interaction in order to make the whole coronation thing happen. I do not believe for a moment that Charlemagne was surprised. No, never. <laughs> so something must have happened where they were like talking about things and I don't know, they had one, one too many beers and the Pope's like, how about I make you emperor? <laughs> no, I couldn't possibly. We don't know. Like, and here's where you can use your imagination to think about how it could work. But I think many historians too often forget that it worked, that behind these sources are real people. It's all very important, though, because dealing with the personalities of the Pope is very much what we do. So before we talk a little bit about competing histories, I want to ask you sort of a, a very hypothetical question, which may not have an answer. But do you think that the church could have survived and maintained itself as a preeminent force without the Carolingians? And do you think that the Carolingians could have achieved the dominance that they do have without the church? Do you think either could have succeeded as well as they did? without one another as part of that? Ooh, but those are two different questions. They are two very different questions. I think, no, uh, they could not have been as successful as they were without one another. That's a very a rare, easy answer for me. <laughs> there was definitely a symbiosis going on there that had it gone a tiny bit differently, had the papacy decided to stick with the Lombards or Pippin, for that matter... Like things would be massively different. There's no, there's no question about that. Myth making or not, would the Carolingians have survived? That's possibly the easier one, because they really don't know. There is a lot of internal tensions in the later eighth, later eighth century, and then again in the uh, mid ninth century, first second quarter of the ninth century, where you can see that the People who have a stake in the empire or the realm continuing refer to the Christianity of their community as a reason for not letting things implode. But there's no way of telling how that would have worked out differently if, say, the bishops were doing that without being able to refer to the Pope, in a way, uh, if that makes any sort of sense. It does. The final question, actually... So the church would have survived one way or another. Maybe there would have been less of a, of a centralized like Catholic church, maybe micro-Christendoms, as they have been called, maybe various sort of acceptable heresies would have been tolerated, but Christianity would not have suffered at all. 
if the papacy were any less powerful or if the patriarch of Antioch would have won out in the end. Like that would have been different, but not less. Well, there's a bold statement. <laughs> but the papacy, I think, had most to lose by all this. Yeah, definitely. Especially considering where they get to. And this this actually leads perfectly into the next question because I want to talk about competing histories and how the overlap of spiritual authority and political power bring them into conflict. And so this comes back to the establishment of the Papal States. And we could argue that the Papal States is what the Church had to lose if it weren't for the Carolingians. But how does the establishment of the Papal States and this idea of a much more concrete secular role for the Pope impact their relationship with the Carolingians, and how does that put them at odds? Hmm. Okay, so the first thing to know is that the idea of the papal state as such is one of these after-the-fact constructions as well, and there are historians, like colleagues of mine, that don't necessarily agree with calling them state. Again, I'm sort of in the camp of there is such a thing as a medieval state. Here you have, again, this tension between uh, secular and, and religious or spiritual authority, where indeed the earlier Carolingians were happy to sort of be secular protector or overlord of Rome, of these papal states, to guarantee land possession, which is in essence what an early medieval ruler would do. You guarantee that people hold on to their possessions. So in that sense there was sort of a dependent relationship going on there. And of course, the Carolingians as rulers would have a lot to gain with a strong administrative center in Rome as well, someone who could keep track of like religious controversies, theological breakthroughs, you name it, so that there is a point of reference that they can go to whenever there's doubt about religious aspects of their rule, an arbiter, if you will, and here, it's kind of an advantage that that person is across the Alps, far away, sitting on the grave of St. Peter, because you don't have to call him, and you can also just say, look, and here's where it gets interesting, you can claim the right to communicate with the papacy. In theory, everyone could go to the Pope, but you weren't supposed to. And there's at least one instance known, I think, of a 9th century priest who is accused of murder. And then he sort of runs to Rome and arrives there before the official delegates of the bishop. The details escape me, but he arrives there before the official delegates of the bishop are there and sort of has already been granted forgiveness. Uh, so, and it's like, yeah, he technically he could do that, but no. So there's this idea that they should monopolize communication rights in a way. And we have so many cases of that where clerics do try to get to Rome to appeal to the Pope beforehand. And then they are people are trying to impede the process of doing that. And it's very interesting to hear that, that idea of monopolizing communication with the papacy. Because that's a motivation we get very much from the other side. Whereas from the papacy, the papacy is often fighting on behalf or admonishing people for trying to impede that process. So that's, that's a very interesting point. This is like the other side or the other half of the answer to your uh, question is actually about this. At some point, the Carolingians, and here I really mean not just Pippin, Charles, Louis, and then Charles Lothar, Louis, like whoever comes after, not just the individual rulers, but their entire court, these bishops and counts they have around them, they start seeing this link with the papacy, maybe, maybe as, or their guardianship over Rome as part of a religious package, a religious set of responsibilities that comes with being ruler. This is something that gradually develops after this initial connection is made. This is where you can see Charlemagne, Louis the Pious, sort of reforming the churches in their own realm. You can, if you want to be teleological about it, the start of the investiture conflict, but that was really not on anyone's radar. 
But here there's potential for conflict. And I think the Pope saw that earlier than the Carolingians saw that as a problem. And you've hit right on my next question, because the question then is, when we're looking at the Carolingian rulers and they start to see themselves as ministerial kings and having a personal investment in the theological authority, how does this complicate the Pope's argument for spiritual dominance? Well, that's, that question answers itself in a way. Yeah, it, we, we've kind of come full on to that, which is, you know, why we end up in a situation where we have the bad translations of the Acts of the Second Council of Nicaea, which turns into the Council of Frankfurt and the Libri Carolini, which is in somewhat direct contravention of what the Pope is trying to argue at this point. And we have real theological conflict where... Charlemagne is saying, I am going to consult my bishops and my conscience before you. Yes, because he at this point is working towards or already has. I mean, there's religious state or conflicts of this kind before and after 800. So I'm just going to call him emperor. But fair, because I kind I kind of think and again, some people disagree, but I think Charlemagne had these imperial ambitions long before he was surprised in 800. A hundred percent. I mean, maybe the title was like a, a nice cherry on top, but he definitely, he was an ambitious guy. And here, like, part of it is going back to these types of power. So claiming religious for like a spiritual responsibility for the well-being of your subjects, claiming that the fact that they live under your ministerium or under your imperium gives them a better chance of reaching heaven because you, as the ruler, have put the best bishops in place, have made sure that all the priests can read. They make a big thing of the education of the empire proto-empire. This, of course, inadvertently gives them also responsibility to deal with heretics and to deal with divergent opinions uh, in a way that wasn't intended by Chalasius. Like, he really meant, like, no, you just do, you round them up and I'll deal with them theologically. But here, like, let's say Charlemagne and his entourage, very important. Uh, this You need bishops like Theodolf and, and intellectuals like Elquin to tell you this. But here comes Charlemagne saying, why should I not also bear that responsibility? I am creating a framework where people can be saved by making sure the priests are all well-educated and that the monks are all doing what monks should do. So that also gives me a responsibility to deal with adoptionism, to deal with iconoclasm, to deal with you name it. He sure does. <laughs> so just wrapping up this idea of competing histories and putting them at odds, is there anything we want to add about things like the donation of Pepin or the Constitutio Romanum in terms of that power dynamic? Do the outcomes of these agreements end up matching the intentions? of what they were put in place for. <laughs> Do they ever? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, there's uh, a famous quote by a 7th century bishop, Isidore of Seville, on the reign of Constantine, Constantine the Great, which he actually, he basically exclaims like, oh, hi pro dolo, so that's Latin for like, woe is me. He had the best of intentions, but it all ended wrong. Something of that sort. That's like the only iron law in history. Like, So the donation of Pepin, the Constitutio Romanum, uh, the donation of, of Constantine, I don't think that the what eventually happens with them is at all what the Carolingians intended or even what the papacy would have intended. Certainly not what the papacy expected. No, definitely not. But one thing that might be a bit Sorry, it's, it's really a non-answer, but an underdeveloped part of how we should look at these, like this creation of the papal state as a secular power in its own limited territory, 
is first of all, it makes the papacy kind of co-heir to the Roman legacy, so the Roman Empire, which I'm not sure if that was the intention, but it definitely helps. But the other thing, which kind of throws a wrench in everything in those dynamics, is that by giving the Pope this secular power and the ability to create an army and raise taxes and do all the things that a secular lord does, it gives the Carolingians something to protect. It inadvertently places the papacy as secular rulers under the wing of the Carolingians, of who are kings of Italy. And that is, I think, also something the papacy really hadn't thought about when they agreed to this little bit of like creative history writing. <laughs> For sure. So just a bonus question before we talk about the wider world. I, I want to know, given all that we have just established, how does Pope Nicholas's vehement rejection of Lothair II's marriage change everything that we just talked about? How? Well, okay, so you're talking about Lothar's marriage or attempt, uh, attempted divorce? Yes, yes, yes. Which we have not covered by the time this episode comes out, but this is just a little teaser for our audience. I don't think it changes that much, except for everything in terms of... No, it changes the framework for the next phase of the mutual myth-making process. Because here we see the first real instance of a Pope, not just sort of mumbling and saying, well, well maybe you shouldn't do that, I guess, but really a Pope blocking something that an Emperor wants. And... This is the important bit, getting the support of the bishops in Francia. There are bishops who are on his side. And that is not unprecedented, but the scale is unprecedented. And the myth-making that evolves from that is unprecedented. Because if you have the bishops on your side, if you have some monasteries on your side, you have the myth-makers on your side. Well, that is, a again, a perfect segue into talking about the wider world, in particular the monasteries. At this point, much of what we've discussed affects the papal court and the Carolingian court, but obviously these dynamics would have impacted the papal states and the Frankish Empire from the top all the way down. So what are some of the more widespread consequences or outcomes of the relationship between the popes and the Carolingians, specifically because I know you love it, in like the monastic communities? Well, that's a very good question. And I think one of the things we have talked about earlier is the absence of the papacy in many attempts by the Carolingians to deal with the religious communities in their realm. To some extent, a lot of what we discussed here is really super high politics along one strand of communication. So Regardless of whether you think the, the papacy is higher or lower in the hierarchy or whether it's a horizontal relationship, but it's a very specific hotline between Rome and Aachen. And the consequence of that is that the papacy couldn't really influence anything that was not discussed over that particular hotline. So ironically, it doesn't really change all that much until... And we're talking mostly later 9th century here, but again, I struggle to generalize. So what we were just talking about, Nicholas uh, asserting himself as a power in his own right in the divorce case, is of course the monster that the Carolingians created. And the moment that, let's say, individual monastic communities, individual bishops, individual priests get wind of this, like, oh wow, this dynamic is such that the ruler cannot really do anything if the Pope decrees one thing or another, then you can use the Pope to get exemptions to place yourself outside of the system created by the Carolingians, which was heavily dependent on their sponsorship of monasteries for that autonomous religious authority that they created for themselves. This refers back to what we were talking about earlier. So everything the Carolingians could not do 
using their bishops, the administrators who were subservient to the Pope in some way, shape or form, they did via monasteries. So every monastery was kind of a little Rome, a little autonomous religious enclave that they could use. I'm currently in the research process looking at the Cluniac reforms, so it's all hitting very, 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 like, authentically on where I am right now. All this, um, I don't think the Carolingians, so when the Carolingians technically stop existing, there's still a precarious balance between the monasteries, the papacy, and the Carolingian court. There is the big topic to mention here is are the pseudo-Isidoran decretals. They are forgeries that were probably made in a monastic setting in the mid-9th century, where it's basically a bunch of monks forging an insane amount of papal letters and interspersing them with actual papal letters. It's a super well-made forgery, and it took us like centuries, much longer than the donation of Constantine to figure out that it was a fake. But the gist of it, the overgeneralization of all these texts, is that it sort of eats away at imperial authority in favor of the bishops and the papacy. So you can see very gradually that monastery, because this has to have been a huge monastic project where the emperor would come by, so are you still praying for the emperor? And hide the manuscripts. We're, and so <laughs> this must have been an operation of some size. But then like, you skip another two or three generations and then Cluny happens. And what's interesting about that is that it's basically a secular aristocrat who sees the potential in explicitly tying monasteries to Rome. That's the revolution that's going on there. But on the other hand, it's also something that I don't think they, so neither the monks nor their sponsor, could get away with in the heyday of the Carolingian dynasty. Like that would have been blocked or that would have been steered shut away down. from, yeah, shut down, steered away from its original intentions. And here, again, like the big problem is, where are we talking about? A monastery like Corby in the north of France or um, Fulda in, in what's now Germany would have had a harder time allying directly with the papacy than Fatfa or San Vincenzo, which was much closer. Although they did try to fight allying with the papacy as much as possible at Farfa as we've been talking about quite a lot lately. Yes. <laughs> so Because for monasteries, as with bishops, and again, you can see faint pre-echoes of the investiture conflicts here. For each of these individual bishops and each of these individual monasteries, they would have their own reasons for thinking the empire as an institution is more to our advantage it's more to our advantage to ally ourselves with the empire than it is to ally ourselves with the papacy. Right. And distance can be a factor. Oh, they're far away, so they won't bother us. Closeness can be a factor. They're close by, so they can protect us. Theology can be a factor. But he is the guardian of St. Peter's grave. We must obey. <laughs> There's all sorts. It's not just pragmatics. It's not just cynical weighing of options like some people actually believed in what they were saying so monastery is a super difficult question but you can see a shift away from believing in the carolingian self-made myth to allying themselves with the papal myth which comes to full fruition as the carolingians drop off the radar and that could be its whole own bonus episode. So we might have to have you back to talk about that because the pseudo-Isidorian decretals and all of that becomes so important as we go. And that's a great place to round out our final questions, which are about sources, because this is very much a conversation already about sources. And throughout my research process, you've been invaluable in helping me obtain and evaluate the source material for the time. So it only makes sense that we wrap up this conversation 
with a discussion about the sources. So what are our greatest sources for the Carolingian period, particularly in looking at its dealings with the church? Oof. Okay, the cur- <laughs> I'm going to throw you a curveball here. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, but the greatest sources really are the manuscripts that we have. Not a single, like not Einhard's Vita Caroli or the Annals of Fulda or the Life of Sturm or something, but the manuscripts that contain the texts which show the extent to which everything we talked about was taken seriously. Right. So, and we can talk about narrative later, I promise you, uh, there, there are, but the greatest sources are the moldy, overused, badly copied handbooks held by priests of a local village that show us that they did have texts that, let's say, Charlemagne or the Pope told them they should have. The manuscripts of these various chronicles and annals that we have been using to to create this picture, and you can see that people make notes in the margin saying, this is bullshit, or wow, this is the best. Like These are the things that really show how everything worked on the ground. If people read a text, there's this thing in the modern world that says you shouldn't write in books. Well, we are super happy that in the ninth century, people did write in books and they wrote a lot in books. And that's where you can see the dynamics actually like go from someone's mind to someone's pen. And that is so very true because we've just finished recording all of our episodes on Pope Joan. She lives Don't in the margins of the manuscripts. <laughs> I know, it took three episodes for us to just get through it all. And this is a great follow-up question to that, because these sources, as our greatest sources, are the most revealing about those power dynamics. So who benefits the most from the power dynamics in these manuscripts? That's the million-dollar question right there. Who, Who cares about what's being written? And who cares about how it's being written? And... If any of my students are listening, this is really the only question I want you to answer about any source. Like, who cares? It's too easy to think that it's the author. And it's nine times out of ten, like, this is the clue as to who the source was written for. They catered to a certain audience. You can call this propaganda, you can call this mollifying, if you will. But... People like Einhard, like Hinkmar, who wrote part of the Chronicles of San Bata, like Ermoldus Nigellus, the astronomer, the biographer of Louis the Pious, they... We loved him. Oh, he's the best. Yeah, Ermoldus, I think, if, if I had to pick a favorite, like I think Ermoldus Nigellus is, mm. is the most fun to work with. Well, he's actually a good example of looking at how many different ways you can read that text. Because on the one hand, so Ermoldus Nigellus wrote like four books of epic poetry about the reign of Louis the Pious. And he tries to emulate Virgil and kind of fails, even though he's better at it than most people think. (laughs) And what he gives us in the process is a very close look at the inner workings of the Carolingian court rituals like where do they live what do they do they all go out hunting he describes the entire hunting trip also how they then sleep around the campfire all that sort of stuff like there's a lot of details in there that really tell us something about like historical facts also he's one of our main sources for the dealings between the papacy and the carolingians he's the one that gives us a very detailed account of and again i suck at Pope orders Stephen's encounter with Louis the Pious? I believe it's Stephen, yes, because we have that whole book of poetry that's dedicated specifically to that meeting. Yes. So he gives a very detailed um, account of the meeting between Louis the Pious when he's just become emperor and Pope Stephen IV. And they sort of mutually admonish each other they tell each other what they should do and it's all super interesting in terms of how these power dynamics work and you can learn a lot from it about what 
people in the early 9th century thought about the papacy and possibly the other way around. But now, like, what becomes interesting is this Ermold writes this while in exile. He has been exiled for some reason, we don't know why. And he writes this entire, these four books of poetry to have Louis convince his son, because he, uh, Ermold was a courtier of Pippin of Aquitaine, and he's the guy that exiled him, and then Ermold writes to Louis the Pious four books of poetry and a letter saying, could you please tell your kid to take me back? So there is a motivation to all of those authorial choices that he is making that is so important to the context. Yeah, because what does that tell us about the fact that Louis the Pious tells the Pope how we should run the church? Is this flattery? Is this real? Why did Ermoldus write it? Well, because he knew that the only people who would ever hear this were high ups at the Carolingian court. This was not a text meant for the Pope. This was not a text meant for the monastery of Farfa. So now we're thinking, okay, what's going on with this narrative? Why do it like this? And those are questions that I don't have the answer to yet, because there's a lot going on there. And that brings us to what we can wrap up as our final question, which is, you know, what should we be keeping in mind when we use and evaluate these sources? And how do we evaluate those authorial choices that they are making and why they're important? So if you can wrap it up in like one context piece, when someone is looking at a Carolingian source, what are the questions they need to ask themselves first? The first answer Going back to these, like, what are the most important sources is to really try and get a sense of the manuscripts in which these texts are conveyed. Uh, you can usually find commentaries in translations or editions. Just knowing how many of them there are already tells you a lot. And if you're really interested, there are many, many increasing an increasing number of online repositories which have digitized a lot of these manuscripts. The French National Library, the Monastery of St. Gallen, the Vatican Library, they, you can sort of toy around in their database and actually look at what these texts look like. Are they beautiful manuscripts or not? Are they large or small? These are things that everyone can do and you don't need to be a trained historian to just have a common sense approach to what these manuscripts tells you. Then, if you don't have time or resources or you just don't want to, which is fine. Oh, we want to. Well, we, we, we can, we can eventually. But um, I think mostly what you should ask, not so much is who wrote this and when, but who is it for? Who benefits from the portrayal that I'm reading here? I think that's a very big question. So whether or not something is true, we don't really care about in a way. Like you can find that out quite easily. But what's interesting for, for me at least mostly is not so much if I take all the sources, put them together, what is the lowest common denominator, like the reality that comes out from underneath it? That's fine. That's a first step. But then when you read individual sources, what you should ask yourself is, what, why does this version of the narrative exist? What was in the head of the writer when the pen was put to parchment, basically? It's a very important question that we all need to look at when we look at sources. And that tells us so much about this period and really gives us the backing and the foundation that we need to look at personalities like the Carolingian leaders and like the popes and give them... The Jew that they deserve. Yeah, and I, th I think the personalities aspect, it's something that I care deeply about. What's important there, again, there's people behind the text and the people writing the text knew this. So what you should ask yourself is, who cares? Who cares? And then think that the author of the text asked himself or herself the same question. Who is going to care about what I am about to write. And again, that's pretty much all I do all day. <laughs> Just asking, who cares about all this? But I mean it. And, that's... and you've been incredibly helpful in my journey of doing exactly that. 
And I think that that is a, a perfect place to wrap up. So do you have a place where if our audience has any questions that they can reach you at or that you prefer? Where can they find you? Well, I am uh, fairly easy to find using the internet. I am on Twitter, where I have a nicely curated timeline. So please don't come there to shout at me. <laughs> but you can find me at uh, Another Aspirin, which is, I think, the lowest threshold way of contacting me if you have an account. Otherwise, just Google me and there will be some institutional page coming up fairly quickly. Uh, with my address on it, I'd be happy to address any questions anyone has. This is basically what I do, and I like it. There is a mathematician with the exact same name as I have, by the way. Oh. <laughs> That's not me. It's the historian one. That's not helpful. Well, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and for all of your help throughout the whole Frankish papacy. It has been an absolute pleasure and I'm so glad and so excited that we got a chance to actually talk on microphones. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, th thank you for having me. It's it's been great. I um I really enjoyed myself. It's it's a nice way of talking about the stuff that I usually only look at in minute detail. So it's refreshing to make grandiose statements, most of which were true. <laughs> <laughs>